To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down in the dust, and I shall live for him. In the name of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Lenten season is an opportunity to reflect on the beginning of your life with God if you're recently baptized. And for the rest of us, it's a chance to renew our commitment to Jesus through intentionally participating in Lenten rituals of fasting, study, and the renewal of other spiritual practices that have fallen away over the course of the year. Lent is about letting go of vices, but also about adding and uh, or recovering aspects of our Christian faith and practice with the outcome intended, not for our own glory, not for showing ourselves that we have a tough will to say no to the food or no to the drink or, or that pull of social media, but so that our faces turn towards the one who gives us strength to live in a world so full of temptations to follow it instead. Lent gives us the opportunity to become more attuned to Jesus, to shine his light and his life, to give hope to others, to open the way for them. Christianity is a communal faith. It is never meant to be lived just for ourselves and for our own piety. On February 15, 2024, an ecumenical prayer service was held at the choir chapel of St. Peter's Basilica in the Roman Catholic Church to celebrate the first commemoration of the 21 Coptic martyrs of Libya. Their feast day, February 15th has been celebrated in the Eastern Orthodox Church since Pope Tawadros II of Alexandria canonized them as Christian martyrs after the world, in horror, viewed a video of them in orange jumpsuits being walked to their deaths on a deserted Libyan beach. Each of them were led by a black-clad Muslim terrorist. They were made to kneel down and were beheaded for all to see. And why? For the sole per reason that they professed the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and they would not renounce their allegiance to him. The leader of the Muslim terrorists was heard to say in English, all praise due to Allah, the strong and mighty, and may blessings and peace be upon the one sent by the, with the sword as mercy to all worlds. O oh, people, recently you've seen us on hills of Al-Sham on Dabik's plain, chopping off the heads that had been carrying the cross delusion for a long time. Carrying the cross delusion. The cross is offensive to many. I mean, what kind of a leader allows the enemy to kill him 
I'm grateful for the cross, grateful that Jesus made this ultimate sacrifice for the world. But I have to say, when I was in my early Christianity, I was not in this tradition, and I heard over and over and over again that Jesus went to the cross so I didn't have to. I understand the difference between Jesus going to the cross. I mean, he paid for the sins of the world. Our going to the cross is not going to do that. But here Jesus is saying plainly, if you wish to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus is called to, in our gospel text to the crowd and his disciples wouldn't have sounded like a flowery metaphor to the first century people. They would have seen it as an invitation to come and die, an invitation to martyrdom. And that is certainly the way the 21 Coptic martyrs in Libya took it. We know Jesus doesn't teach a martyrdom complex, but he does, however insists that his followers lose their lives. He insists we deny ourselves and be prepared to die, should it be required of us to remain true to our faith. So what kind of faith did the 21 martyrs possess that would allow them to walk with dignity to their deaths, to their beheading deaths, rather than deny the name of Jesus Christ as Son of God, the Messiah who walked to his death willingly putting himself on the shameful cross to die a death meant for criminals? What gave them the conviction and the courage? I imagine that their trust had to be implicit. Trust in the identity of Jesus. They had to trust that Jesus is who he said he is. That he isn't just an inspiration or a legislator or a moralist. They must have believed that Jesus is not simply a human being whose example or teaching is specifically poignant, something they should follow. They must have believed, as Rowan Williams writes in his essay, Christology, Jesus, quote, Jesus is the phenomenon in the human world that opens up for everyone the possibility of directly standing before God and so worshiping God that it is God's own glory and love with, alive within the believer. Those modern 21, day, 21 martyrs were able to walk along that beach, kneel down, and let their heads be cut off because they knew they were not alone. They knew that God's own glory and love was alive within them. Their witness, as seen in their walk, as they walked to their death, they went without resistance. It showed his glory was more important, more valued than their living in this world. They knew who they were following. And it wasn't just an intellectual knowing, it was a knowing of their all fiber of their whole bodies. It's interesting that right before the gospel, our gospel text, Mark 
8:27 through 30. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, it's the, your prophet, Elijah. And he asked them, ah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. By focusing on the statement of Jesus' identity, Mark has been leading up to this climactic moment when Peter says, you are the Christ. In Matthew, Jesus cried out at that moment, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Up until Peter states, you are the Christ, it has been demons who were the only ones who could recognize and bow to the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. In chapter 124, the demon calls out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Chapter 134, Jesus wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Chapter 3, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, the demon cried out, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The scribes and the Pharisees and all the religious men were offended at Jesus, and they accused him of being possessed by the devil, which was exactly the opposite of who he was. So Peter identifies Jesus. First disciples say, you are the Christ. This recognition of Jesus prepares the way for Jesus to tell them, to teach them the way of the cross that he's to take. This is where he corrects their understanding of what to expect from the Messiah. He's not going to be a warrior and come in and lead this violent revolution and take over the land and, and the Romans and give the Israelites back their, their glorious land. His mission is much bigger than that. The Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things. He will be rejected and killed, and after three days, he'll rise again. Now, to be clear, the reference to himself as the Son of Man, that gives a huge clue to the people all around him they were all Jewish people, and they knew that what Jesus was referring to, the vision in Daniel 7, and in 7, 13, 14, and this is how it goes. I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, to all, that all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Now with that understanding of the Son of Man, we can understand why Peter reacts the way he does, right? Imagine, Peter Peter's, takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. He says, wait a minute. You're the, the kingship that will never end. Your, king, your dominion is, will never, never die. And what are you saying you're going to go the way of suffering? Matthew records Peter saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns around to Peter 
And he rebukes him, calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not on the side of God. You're on the side of, the, of humans. The same Peter he called blessed and that he was going to build his church upon, this Peter had no idea of the way God works. By rebuking Jesus and telling him to go another way, the way that the world conceives of power, Peter was actually an agent of Satan, the enemy of God. Where else do we see or hear of Satan um, uh, tempting Jesus? Immediately after Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And we hear not the disciples, but God the Father identifying Jesus. He says, you are my beloved son, and, you, and, and um, with you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit immediately drives him into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. But Jesus does not answer Satan the way that he answers Peter, and for good reason, because Jesus isn't, re isn't just rebuking Peter. He's teaching him. Pseudo Chrysostom writes this of the exchange, quote, but he saith not to the devil when tempting him, get thee behind me, but to Peter, he saith, get thee behind me. That is, follow me and resist not the design of my voluntary passion. In my words, Peter, don't block my way with your will. Accept this is the way and follow me. The 21 martyrs walked to their death without resistance. Of the 21 martyrs who walked that Libyan beach, there was one who was not a Coptic Christian. His name was Matthew Ayariga. Little, no, little is known about Matthew. Um, he was of African descent. Some say Ghana, some say Chad. They didn't know his, his birth date. They believe he was between 25 and 35. He left his hometown to become a migrant worker and ended up in the Libyan port town of Sitra and was befriended by the Coptic Christians in Egypt. It was said of the militants that they had questioned Ayariga about his faith after, before his death, no doubt wondering you know, what had linked him to the Coptic uh, Christians from Egypt. Ayariga reportedly told them simply, their God is my God. Their God is my God. What kind of faith did those martyrs have? The faith of Abraham, who believed God would do what he promised that he would bring, that he would do, that he would bring forth out of barrenness a multitude of nations to be God to, that he would bring a plentiful life out of nothingness because he's the author of life and a faith that rests on the grace of God so that all are included in the blessings. Our faith is not for ourselves. It is for others. 
Matthew was taken into the fold by those 20 men. Obviously, their example of living faith inspired and encouraged Matthew in his faith and the ultimate sacrifice he made for their God, which was his God. A faith that rests on the goodness and the mercy of God. A faith that believes in losing our own lives for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel actually does mean that we gain true life now in this life and in eternity. I'm pretty sure none of us have faced what those modern Christians did, but we are called nonetheless to lose our lives for his sake for the gospel's sake. What does that look like for you in this season of Lent, our blessed season of reflection and self-examination and faith renewal? For some of us, he might be asking us to let go of our strength and rest in his. Maybe to trust in a, him in a relationship that needs mending by forgiveness. Maybe trusting him for a full day off from work. Or in, maybe intentionally being kind to everyone we meet. For others, he might be urging us to more time in prayer spent with him. Or to turn to him when we want to eat that chocolate. And for others, he may be nudging us towards service. I'll end with this question. Is our faith, and I use our intentionally, we are a community of faith and we have a corporate witness as the Cathedral Church of St. Luke. Is our faith inspiring others to faith? Is how we treat each other, how we worship, inspiring others to faith? From my vantage point, I have to say a resounding yes. The love and the care for others that I see demonstrated through each and every one of you every day in so many ways inspires and encourages me in my faith. And I know that many who have walked through the doors have felt the same way that I do. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, may your love burn in our hearts, creating in us, Lord, a love for others outside of ourselves. May our faith be as the faith of Abraham, fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised. May we be knit together in the same purpose as the Coptic martyrs of Libya, living for you and dying for you. And may we follow you in the way of suffering, 
that we may know the presence of your strength and your resurrection and rejoice with you in your eternal glory. Amen.